Hello, and welcome to the Journal of American History podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Marina Meekum, editorial assistant for the Journal of American History and PhD candidate in history at Indiana University. In today's blogcast episode, we're taking a look at Emiliano Aguilar's article, The Machiavelli of the Mexican-American People, Steelworkers, the Catholic Church, and Building Political Power. First published in Process, a blog for American history on March 28, 2023. In 1951, St. Jude's Catholic Church, in partnership with Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, opened its doors to a new program, Dahon College. Located in East Chicago, an industrial lakefront town of northwest Indiana, these three institutions comprised important pillars of the Spanish-speaking community blocks from the primary city employer, Inland Steel. Dahon College was an English-language program established with the financial support of Inland Steel and Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company that sought to provide immigrants with skills in English and encourage permanent residency. The college was started by Frederick Maravilla, a veteran of World War II and a University of Chicago graduate, and Father John P. Flanagan, who hoped the church could provide Americanization programs for the East Chicago immigrant community. Dahon College was one such program. However, Dahon was to have an even broader political impact in East Chicago with the hiring of Robert F. Segovia as both assistant director and full-time instructor. Segovia educated previously excluded ethnic Mexican and Puerto Rican students about politics and emphasized the importance of community engagement. The college became a vital component of how he asserted his political influence. Segovia recognized this experiment's political potential as children, individuals like Segovia and Maravilla witnessed efforts by the local American Legion to repatriate ethnic Mexicans. For Segovia, this experience highlighted the need for political power in his community. Their removal was only possible because the community lacked political power. For decades, the city, run by a democratic political machine, did not even work to court the primarily ethnic Mexican vote, deeming it minimal and initial efforts within the community failed to mobilize voters. In this context, Dahon College became a vehicle for the Spanish-speaking community to pursue influence and push for political power, as outsiders seeking to become insiders. The college proved a popular initiative among the growing ethnic Mexican and Puerto Rican community, who arrived to work in the city's primary employer, Inland Steel. In 1955, the college enrolled 200 people for one semester, with nearly another 200 on the waiting list. Dahon College attracted a variety of students. Primarily Spanish-speaking, they ranged in age from 16 to 60, including both men and women. Single migrant men working in steel during the off-season for the beet fields of Michigan and northern Indiana enrolled in the classes as well. While many students were steel workers, other were domestic workers, service employees, and small business owners. In the classroom, Segovia devised numerous types of courses to accommodate these students. These included English through pictures, which incorporated film, radio recordings, and charts. In another course, signs from the steel mill were used as visual lessons and doubles as teaching workplace safety. Additionally, Segovia taught a class to the steel workers entitled Citizenship. This course aimed to introduce the laborers to voting, government structures, and basic civics. The course offered Segovia an opportunity to impress onto his students his own political understanding, 
often rooted in Latinas and Latinos supporting their neighbors as their elected representatives. In this way, the curriculum at Dajon gave Segovia the tools to begin building a patronage network. Most politics in East Chicago were run by an association of Democratic voters organized on a neighborhood level via precincts to make sure its candidates were elected, often in exchange for political jobs or services. But Segovia sought to circumvent these endorsements and hierarchies. In 1954, without the endorsement of the political machine, Segovia financed his campaign for precinct committee man in East Chicago. One supporter, Robert Avigna, recalled that Segovia claimed to have spent $5,000 and canvassed every resident in his precinct to win his position. Segovia's successful campaign drew on his connection to adult learners, and his victory allowed him to win friends' positions as precinct committeemen by repeating the strategy in adjacent precincts and using his supporters as assistants. Many were also fellow members of 2020, or the Latin American Democratic Club of East Chicago. 2020 served as a vital incubator for future talent and a method to build campaign funds. Each of the 20 core members donated $20 to the budget, which in turn funded select candidates for office both in East Chicago and in Local 1010 of the United Steelworkers Union, USW, one of the largest unions in the United States. It was his connection to the 2020 network, along with his ability to reach district residents, both through the classroom and via canvassing, that helped Segovia win his position as precinct committee man. This voting bloc of Latinas and Latinos became a vital component of Segovia's political power and influence. As precinct committee man, Segovia gained the ability to hire his supporters to work polling places. Uniting residents behind particular candidates allowed Segovia to ensure those loyal to him began to fill other offices, such as the precinct committee and later councilman positions. With this voting position in city government, Segovia advocated for more supporters and positions of hiring, such as the Parks Department, granting him informal influence over even more patronage. This only grew as Segovia gained district influence and the final say about hiring in the school district. From his office, Segovia could use his political power and extensive network to broker a job for any supporter who asked. For a political machine, the precinct committee man represented a vital gear. As the face of the party in their precinct, these individuals canvassed homes each election to ensure that the preferred candidate received votes. According to Avina, quote, usually the precinct committee men are picked by the Democratic Party, or who's going to run for the precinct committee is determined by the man who has the councilman position. However, Segovia built up his own base before even being elected to the precinct committee. Through Dahon College, Segovia gained access to potential new voters and could frame himself as a leader in his community. In this position, Segovia reiterated the need for unity to ensure Latinos controlled their blocks and neighborhoods, giving them power that they could then leverage across the city. By building this support backwards, Segovia formed a voting bloc that ensured him more precinct committee positions each election. This meant that before there were ever any Latino councilmen, Segovia had created an effective submachine to guarantee their success. This submachine forced the main political machine to negotiate with the Latino community. Opponents of Segovia began to label him the Machiavelli of the Mexican-American people. Dahon College contributed significantly to the growth of a Latino submachine. 
Former students became vital supporters not only for Segovia, but also for his preferred candidates and friends, allowing Segovia to build a local patronage network that extended into Local 1010 of USW, the school district, and the Parks Department, all places where Segovia supporters held hiring positions. For example, one of Segovia's former pupils, steelworker Victor Manuel Martinez, went on to become a writer and editor for the bilingual Latin Times. From this position, Martinez penned fiery columns denouncing political machines, the manipulation of the Latin community, and calling for unity, like Segovia, among the residents into a cohesive voting bloc. By 1959, a majority of the precinct committee in the 6th and 5th districts were Latinos and supporters of Segovia. That same year, Segovia got a job at Washington High School, where he became the assistant principal and dean of boys in 1963. Martinez would use the Latin Times to publicize where Latinas and Latinos found work, often due to Segovia's promotion to the assistant superintendent of personnel in 1970. As the assistant superintendent of personnel, Segovia could distribute patronage in custodial, clerical, and teaching jobs. This ability to help hire Latinas and Latinos only expanded his network of influence. Segovia's successes forced the political machine to reevaluate its relationship with the ethnic Mexican and Puerto Rican communities. Mayor Walter Jaros became the first machine candidate to include a Mexican on his ballot, Joseph Maravilla, for the school board. When Jaros failed to appoint a Mexican-American into the position of department head in any municipal department, Segovia's bloc switched to Jaros's opponent, Dr. John B. Nicosia, who then won a narrow election with strong support from the Latino districts. However, there were limits to Segovia's political power. In 1958, he launched an unsuccessful bid for sixth district councilman. While the district contained a large concentration of ethnic Mexicans and Puerto Ricans, it was not the entirety of the residents. Furthermore, the presence of other Latino candidates, who Segovia supporters claimed were paid to run by the Democratic machine, split the vote and cost Segovia the election. After this failed bid, Segovia exited electoral politics as a candidate opting not to even run for re-election to his precinct committee position. Some critics claim Segovia attained success through nefarious means. In 1964, a probe by the Northwest Indiana Crime Commission accused Segovia and his supporters of allowing voting infractions to occur. While these allegations never became formal charges, they illuminate Segovia's particular understandings of politicking. The accuser claimed that Segovia and his Latino precinct committee had foreigners voting under registered voting aliases and that, in some cases, Latinos from neighboring cities were voting in East Chicago. Critics had leveled similar accusations at the East Chicago political machine for decades and, if the allegations against Segovia were true, they suggested that he adopt the political methods of his surroundings. From his position at Dahon College, Segovia built a vital foundation, block by block, for political power in his community. These blocks would assist him in creating a brief but effective submachine that the city was forced to contend with until it no longer remained a cohesive source of votes. Segovia's political machine began to break down when the Latino unity that it was based upon faltered. In 1975, Segovia's submachine lost several precincts, when the primary political machine pitted his candidates against African-Americans and other Latinos, often Puerto Rican, as well as dissenters from Segovia's organization. In 1977, 
the city administration removed Segovia's appointee to the Parks Department, replacing him with a Latino more closely aligned with the administration than Segovia. This deprived the aspiring Machiavelli of access to patronage appointments in the Parks Department, where his allies had been able to hire Segovia supporters. Shortly after, a group of Puerto Rican and Black residents complained that Segovia excluded their communities from positions within East Chicago School District. Under these allegations and resulting public pressure, the city council fired Segovia as superintendent of personnel. Without the ability to unilaterally distribute patronage appointments to the park department or school system, Segovia's submachine faltered. An ethnic submachine gave way to a more precarious multiracial machine, whose components competed over an ever-dwindling amount of resources as deindustrialization brought more difficult economic times. Emiliano Aguilar is a political and labor historian of the United States, specifically the Latina Latino Midwest at the University of Notre Dame. His manuscript in progress, Building a Latino Machine, Caught Between Corrupt Political Machines and Good Government Reform, explores how the ethnic Mexican and Puerto Rican community of East Chicago, Indiana, navigated machine politics in the 20th and 21st centuries to further their inclusion in municipal and union politics. Music for this blogcast episode features King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band's 1923 recording of Mabel's Dream. King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band was one of the first Black American jazz ensembles to receive a recording contract from Paramount Records. In its early years, the band featured Joe Oliver, Louis Armstrong, Johnny Dodds, Honor Daughtry, Lily Armstrong, Johnny St. Sir, and Babe Dodds. Thanks for tuning in to the Journal of American History podcast. Follow us on social media to hear about upcoming full-length podcast episodes and more bite-sized blogcast episodes like this.